Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Monday, September 5th, 2022. It's been 3,112 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 193 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth because the truth matters. As always, let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, Russian defensive lines north of Kherson have likely collapsed, with Ukraine potentially advancing 18 kilometers and evidence suggesting that Russian artillery positions were overrun in some areas. Second, Russian military strategy has wasted its light infantry forces to the point that it has reached a crisis level in multiple locations, with plentiful artillery and armor, but a lack of troops to attack, secure, and hold territory. Third, Russia's inability to establish air supremacy remains a deciding factor for Ukraine. Ukrainian suppress and destroy enemy air defense efforts have enabled the Air Force to launch approximately 50 combat sorties a day, and they've started to fly combat air patrols seeking targets of opportunity. Fourth, Ukraine has worked to set conditions for a counteroffensive to liberate Izum since June, and there are signs that a broader attack on Russian positions may be in the advanced planning stages. Fifth, the Russian military has made no progress toward achieving President Vladimir Putin's September 15th deadline to capture the remaining territory of the Donetsk Oblast. Sixth, Ukrainian forces continue to hold fire control over vital supply lines for Russian forces and are choking off munitions, fuel, and equipment in Kherson, Zaporizhia, and Izium. Seventh, we maintain that the risk of Russian terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure to break morale is exceptionally high and will remain so for the foreseeable future. And finally, not all victories on the battlefield are kinetic. Ukraine's continuous attacks on Russian ground lines of communication, or GLOCs, those are supply lines, indicate the larger plan is to collapse Russian resistance by forcing them to consume their existing supplies to the point of exhaustion. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. The Russian defense line on the Dnipropetrovsk-Kherson administrative border is collapsing. Early on September 4th, Ukrainian forces announced they had liberated the strategically important town of Viskopilia and raised the Ukrainian flag over the hospital. We had previously assessed that Olkhin and Arkhangelsk are liberated. 
The Russian Ministry of Defense confirmed the withdrawal, stating it was done to prevent encirclement. Because Russian forces retreated south and not southwest, and due to their military leaders determining further defense was untenable, we assess Novopetrivka as contested and under Ukrainian fire control, or liberated. Russian sources claim that Russian airborne or VDV troops abandoned their positions at Novovoznesensk on September 4th, which further confirms that Russian forces retreated to the south. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported that Ukrainian troops in the area of Novovoskresensk, which is 20 kilometers south of Viskopilia, were being shelled. Operational Command South, or OCS, reported the control and observation post of the 10th Spetsnaz, 126th Separate Guards Coastal Defense, was destroyed. Open-source intelligence placed the 126th in Novovoskresensk, supporting that the settlement is contested. Claims by pro-Russian accounts of a VDV-led counteroffensive that successfully recaptured Viskopilia is almost certainly a disinformation campaign. The genesis of the report comes from Anatoly Shari, who has been wanted by Ukraine since 2021 and is accused of treason. He currently resides in Spain. Spanish authorities briefly took him into custody in May on an international arrest warrant, but they did not feel there was enough evidence to hold him in jail. He's barred from leaving Spain and must report to the court system twice a month. There's been a flood of pictures and videos of Russian prisoners of war on social media channels, but we can't confirm the location or time when they were recorded. Ukrainian forces are almost certainly taking prisoners, given the speed of the advance. There are also pictures and videos appearing of captured equipment and munitions. Some quick assessment here. In late June, we reviewed satellite images to determine the location of Russian defensive positions and their relationship to the roads and natural defenses such as dense tree lines, creeks, canals, and reservoirs. To maintain journalistic integrity and operational security, or OPSEC, we won't share the details of our findings. To clarify, the Russian second line of defense is not integrated and represents areas of trenches, bunkers, and redoubts for artillery, mostly clustered around certain villages and towns. Based on our research, in some parts of northern Kherson, the first line of defense has been overrun, and the second line of defense is contested. A video recorded before September 2nd, based on weather conditions, showed Ukrainian counter-battery destroying a Russian Musta-S self-propelled howitzer south of Kostyrka, which is in the contested zone of our updated map. We feel confident in declaring that Ukrainian forces have had a breakthrough and appear poised to capitalize on the tactical successes of the last 36 hours. Given the distance gained in new territory, Ukraine will likely initiate an operational pause soon, specifically in the direction of Novovoskresensk, to consolidate positions and reinforce G-locks. Our favorite FSB colonel, wanted war criminal and Kremlin pariah Igor Gherkin-Strelkov, reported that the situation on the Inulets River bridgehead was unchanged, and added confirmation that Ukraine liberated Blachudatyvka. Pro-Russian accounts calling Sukhistavok a Ukrainian graveyard are almost certainly an exaggeration, and don't match the reliable reports we've received about Ukrainian losses. Strelkov reported that Ukrainian forces were pressuring the T-2207 highway, an essential ground line of communication for Russian positions along the Inulets River. 
The GSAFU reported that Bezimen and Kostromka were shelled, and Sukistavok was hit by an airstrike, confirming that Ukrainian forces are holding positions south of the bridgehead. Due to supply issues, low morale, and poorly maintained equipment, Russia's artillery capabilities are not equivalent to their June apex. As covered in previous assessments, we continue to read and hear complaints from Russian forces about inadequate artillery and air support. There wasn't any new information west and northwest of Kherson about territorial gains or losses. Ukrainian forces destroyed a larger Russian ammunition depot in Tominabalka. This confirms that the CNN report on August 29th was incorrect. We had marked the area contested based on the earlier report, but were skeptical. We've adjusted the map to show the region under Russian control. The progress made by the Ukrainian armed forces since August 29th has exceeded our expectations and our predictions from July 29th. Ukraine repeatedly attacked the Antonovsky Bridge near Kherson with HIMARS, and the latest pictures indicate the bridge deck has partially collapsed. With Ukraine holding fire control on the Dnipro, the Antonovsky, Antonovsky Mist Railroad, and Novokakhovka bridges are irreparable. OCS reported that the Russian ferry crossing at Lvov was also attacked. GSAFU reported that Russian occupation forces had closed the ferries and the Dnipro River to all civilian traffic. It is alleged that Russian forces have been ordered to shoot any civilians or non-military vessels attempting to cross. Ukraine attacked the pontoon bridge over the Inulets in Darivka. At the time of recording, there wasn't a battle damage assessment available. OCS reported that members of the 127th Regiment of the 1st Army Corps of the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, refused to fight due to poor conditions and a lack of adequate supplies, including drinking water. Russian FSB allegedly took the refusers away. We are observing growing signs of supply shortages and disruptions across Kherson, although this is the first report of a military unit lacking basic survival needs. The Ukrainian Air Force executed 21 airstrikes on Russian targets, while artillery fired across the entirety of the front. The Cavell Group reported that the Ukrainian Air Force is now flying CAP, indicating growing confidence after two months of suppress-and-destroy enemy air defense activities in Kherson and Zaporizhia. NASA Fire Information for Resource Management Systems, or FIRMS, and Sentinel Hub were blinded due to dense cloud cover, which has now lifted. We are hopeful we will have additional intelligence over the next 24 hours. Some assessment here. We had written an earlier assessment that ended up in the circular file, that's Gen X for trash, predicting that Russian forces would defend Novovoskresensk. With GSAFU reporting the settlement is already being shelled by Russian forces, Ukrainian forces have almost certainly started an advance on what we believe is the next strategically important city. Ukraine's advance from the Inulets River bridgehead and Strelkov's report of a possible advance on Bruskinsk indicates that the ultimate goal of the current advance is Borusensk. An advance from both directions would sever the primary G-locks west of the Inulets River, make Russian positions untenable, and complicate a withdrawal due to a lack of roads and natural terrain features east of Velika Oleksandrivka. Although the Russian military presence on the west side of the Dnipro is 25,000 troops, there are numerous reports of a significant shortage of light infantry soldiers required to defend and, 
if needed, retake territory. Conscripted troops from the DNR have low morale and have previously expressed resentment when deployed outside of the Donbass. Other proxy forces have a limited presence, putting the burden of defense on Russian VDV and special operation forces. These troops are far less likely to retreat or surrender, but their numbers are limited. If Ukrainian forces punch through Novovoskresensk, all bets are off. That would indicate a collapse of Russian defenses and a looming rout. It would also force Russian military leaders to make hard decisions with their available resources. Option A. Continue to defend the Inulets between Davididbrid and Starosilia with poor GLOC support and risk encirclement. Leaving the positions opens up the entire Inulets for uncontested wet crossings by Ukraine. Option B. Continue to try and contain the advance from the Inulets River bridgehead at Andrivka-Lozova, if Ukraine keeps advancing from the south. The containment becomes moot if Borosensky has to be defended. Option C. Attempt to establish a new defensive line south of Novovoskresensk while under fire control and increasing pressure from Ukrainian troops. All of that to say, if we were making decisions for one of the belligerents, we would rather be in Kiev right now than in Moscow. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and northern Zaporizhia. The situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is unchanged from yesterday and appears to have stabilized. This is likely due to the full-time presence of IAEA inspectors. Valentin Reznichenko, head of the Dnipropetrovsk Oblast Military Administration, reported that 12 artillery shells hit Nikopol. We could not have written it better than his statement, quote, The horde was battling a gymnasium, a pet shop, an association of Afghanistan veterans, coffee shops, and other military targets. They damaged multi-story and private residential buildings and power lines, end quote. Seriously, the sarcasm here is absolutely top-notch. There were reports of explosions heard in Zaporizhia, but no reports of damage or impacts in the city. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southern Zaporizhia. The situation is unchanged from yesterday, with exchanges of artillery, rockets fired by MLRS, an indirect tank fire from the administrative border with Donetsk to Huliapol to Orekhiv to Kamyansk. Ukrainian forces continue to put pressure on Russian troops in the direction of Tokmak and Polohi. In southwest Donetsk, the DNR militia Telegram channel released a video recorded on September 3rd showing fighting at the E-50 Ring Road stronghold just south of Piski and a Ukrainian tank striking two mines on the border of Piski and Pervomaisky. Pro-Ukrainian and Russian sources reported that Ukrainian forces had retaken strongpoints south of Piski. Based on this information, we maintain that Piski is contested, and we readily admit we are being pedantic. Still, there is a high degree of certainty that a small Ukrainian presence exists on the east side of the ring road within Piski. In addition to Piski, Russian forces continued to attack and could not make gains. 
The First Army Corps of the DNR attempted to advance on Nevelske, Pervomaiske, and Vodjana. In a newly released video, the DNR militia claimed to have made gains in Marinka, showing a block of apartments being shelled near the center of town. We geolocated the apartments, and the drone operator was in the city's eastern section, where reporters have operated for the last month. There has been no change in the front. The DNR released another video south of Oleksandrivka, showing a squad of Ukrainian soldiers under artillery fire. The group withdrew, with one person wounded and one killed. This was three kilometers east of where we believed the line of conflict was. Based on this new intelligence, we've moved the line of conflict and adjusted Novomikhailivka as under Ukrainian control instead of contested. The situation around Bakhmut is unchanged. Russian forces attempted to advance on Solidar, Bakhmutska, and Bakhmut, with Solidar and Bakhmut coming under heavy artillery fire, but could not gain new territory. In addition, the Russian Air Force also launched attacks on Solidar. Russian forces attempted to advance on Vesela Dolina, but were unsuccessful. In the Svetlodarsk bulge, the most intense fighting outside of Kherson was in Kodema, as Ukrainian forces and the private military company, or PMC, Wagner Group exchanged territory back and forth. Wagner was supported by the Russian Air Force, but remained unable to break through the strong Ukrainian defenses. Kadyrovites with the 141st Akhmat failed to advance on Zaintseve or Mayorsk. Our assessment in Bakhmut is unchanged from August 25th. We last recapped it on Thursday's episode around minute 11. In northeast Donetsk and Luhansk, Ukrainian forces crossed the Seversky Donetsk River and liberated the settlement of Ozern after fighting Kadyrovites with the 141st Akhmat. We had previously assessed this area as lightly defended after Russia withdrew troops to support fighting for Severodonetsk and Lysychansk in late June. Those units were not replenished and were redeployed to the Donetsk and Zaporizhia regions. Pro-Russian accounts admitted to a limited troop presence north of the Seversky Donetsk and claimed that's why Ozern was liberated so easily. The liberated settlement is symbolic. Up to yesterday, Russia controlled all of the communities north of the river. The settlements around Siversk were shelled, as well as Bilohorivka and Spirne on the T-1302 highway and Raihorodok near Russian-occupied Lehman. Our assessment here is unchanged from August 18th, which we also recapped on Thursday's episode around minute 14. Moving on to the Kharkiv region, starting with the Izum Axis. A large Russian ammunition depot in Balaklia was destroyed by Ukrainian artillery. The blast was estimated to be equivalent to one kiloton. Northwest of Izum, Husarivka, Chepil, and Mospanova were shelled. Airstrikes were carried out on Husarivka and Bohorodichne. Russian forces attacked Krasnupilia and were, as usual, unsuccessful. Residents of Izum received a message over multiple telegram channels saying, quote, Dear residents of Izum, the armed forces of Ukraine ask, prepare shelter, food, water, basic necessities, and Ukrainian flag. Avoid places where enemy equipment and the enemy personnel congregate. Glory to Ukraine. End quote. 
It is noteworthy because Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky held another closed-door meeting of the staff of the Supreme Commander-in-Chief today. This was the same message sent to residents of Kherson 48 hours before the counteroffensive began and just before the first closed-door meeting of the senior commanders of Ukraine's military, territorial guard, police, and intelligence services. Additionally, there have been a significant number of artillery, rocket, and HIMARS strikes on positions north of Izum, targeting supplies, troop concentrations, and ammunition. It would be audacious to open up a second major counteroffensive to liberate Izum. However, if the counteroffensive in Kherson is exceeding expectations, or if Ukraine has the resources, this would be the most logical place to launch a second attack. Troops have low morale, and there are significant ammunition shortages. Most of the units on the Axis are poorly equipped and trained, and used by PMC Wagner Group as frontline troops. The first Guards tank army is ill-suited for the forests of Izum, and there is a lack of light infantry to provide armor support. Ukraine has worked to disable electronic warfare, air defenses, and improve counter-battery effectiveness. Geography also favors Ukraine. Russia would be required to swing the reinforcements currently staged in Zaporizhia around Ukraine to enter the battlefield, while leaving Zaporizhia underdefended. Our assessment of the Izum axis is the same as it was on August 8th. To recap, we remain unwilling to call the ongoing action by Ukrainian forces a counteroffensive, and we maintain that Russian forces between Avdrivka and Kopanki are now in a salient and at moderate risk of encirclement if Ukrainian forces were to make a breakthrough. There wasn't any significant ground fighting in northern Kharkiv. Typical artillery exchanges occurred along the entire line of conflict northwest, north, and northeast of the city. Two Russian S-300 anti-aircraft missiles struck the Kolodnohirsky and Novobavarsky districts of Kharkiv, injuring two people. Our assessment in Kharkiv is unchanged from August 12th, which we last recapped on Friday's episode around minute 22. To the north in the Cherniaven Sumi region, Dmitro Zhivitsky, Sumi Oblast administrative and military governor, reported the Hromadas of Znob Novhorod, Shalakhin, Seredina Buda, and Esmen were hit by mortars fired from across the international border. There were no casualties reported. Two Ukrainian soldiers are under criminal investigation after the accidental discharge of a rocket-propelled grenade launcher at the History Center during a weapons exhibit. The RPG-26 was live and given to a child who asked to hold it, who then accidentally fired the weapon, injuring up to 14 people. The soldiers are facing charges of violating the rules for handling weapons, which caused bodily harm to several persons. They could face up to 10 years in prison. Intentional wrongdoing is not suspected. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. In another sign that the Kherson counteroffensive is going poorly for Russia, Russian presidential spokesperson Dmitry Peskov said Moscow is ready to hold negotiations with Kyiv, but with, quote, certain terms and conditions. While speaking on national television, Peskov asserted that Russian President Vladimir Putin is ready to negotiate, 
but added the demands would be the only topic on the agenda, according to RT News. Answering a question regarding the possibility of engaging with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, he said, quote, Yes, of course. We can talk about how our demands will be met. End quote. Not to be nitpicky or anything, but that last part makes it sound like they're not actually open to real negotiations. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Exiled Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor Serhii Haidai reported that Russian occupiers had intentionally flooded the operating coal mines in Luhansk, taken critical equipment, and forced conscripted all of the coal miners to fight for Russia. The mines may never be recovered, according to Haidai, and the flooding could cause an ecological disaster. The Donbass is dotted with coal and uranium mines back to the Soviet era. The water within the mines is laced with radioactive isotopes and other heavy metals that could threaten the water table. If the contaminated water gets into the drinking water, it could cause ecological problems for decades. Russian forces fired rockets from MLRS into Velika Kostromka in the Dnipropetrovsk oblast, killing a nine-year-old boy and wounding ten others. The daytime attack happened during the lunch hour. All of the wounded are hospitalized in critical condition. A child was killed and two more were injured near Mykolaiv during a missile attack. One of their parents was also injured. The condition of the wounded was unknown. The GSAFU reported that forced mobilization occurred in hospitals throughout Donetsk. Men of conscription age are being discharged against medical advice to be sent to the fighting. We can't confirm this report's veracity, but LNR and DNR commanders have publicly complained about conscripts arriving who are sick, injured, and incapable of fighting. The shortage of light infantry forces and Russia's inability to mobilize a fighting force is pretty well documented. There weren't any significant geopolitical developments, and we don't cover the economy on the weekend. But wait, you say, it's Monday. It is, you're right, it's Monday. But this particular Monday, September 5th, is a bank holiday in the United States, so it's still part of the weekend for us. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.